For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn into Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own one, there's uh, six or so on the back table. One of those is now yours. Go ahead and grab that. That's our gift to you. I'd love for you to have the text in front of you no matter how you can so you know that I'm not just making this stuff up, which wouldn't help anybody. Okay? Now, uh, believe it or not, if you've, if you've been here since we started this, we're getting kind of close to the end of this series uh, in Galatians called Freedom. This book has been, a challenge, has been challenging us with the question of how it is how it is that we're right before God, and why it is that when we look to anything other than Jesus to be right before God, or to bring us our flourishing, it brings us into slavery, a slavery that we weren't made for. And this week, we come to what I, what I think is, is a critical passage that deals with uh, the fact that Christianity is offensive, right? Christianity is offensive, but maybe not for the reasons that you may think. Christianity is offensive, true freedom is offensive because it only comes by the cross. So if you have your place in Galatians 5, let's stand, that's our habit here. Uh, as, as we hear the, the word read, we stand under its authority. We'll be reading verses 7 to 12. Rather shocking end to this week's passage. So uh, let's remember this is God's very word. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Believe it or not, even that is God's very word. Would you pray with me? Father... Uh, Oh, I pray that you would waken us from our slumber. Uh, We've come into this room filled with lots of different things, uh, distractions, things that would pull us away, even thinking at this point about how we're going to get home in the midst of icy roads. And we pray, Lord, just that you would speak to us. You would open our ears to hear from you, open our eyes to see our Savior, Jesus, and he would open our hearts to trust and believe in him. Lord, rouse us from our slumber by your Spirit. Speak to us today. Preach your gospel to us, Lord, for you alone hold the words of eternal life. Speak, because your servants are listening, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Americans love a good scandal, right? I mean, uh, probably more so since the advent of the 24-hour news cycle. Now, some of us in this room are not old enough to remember when the news didn't run 24 hours a day, when there weren't cable news channels, when you had to... If you really wanted the rest of the day's news, you had to wait for the 11 o'clock news uh, or read the paper in the morning. Uh, But that's our reality now. 24-hour news. Now, we don't much care if the scandal involves, well, anything. It could involve 
a president and his intern. It could involve a sports team and deflation. We don't really care. We just love the gotcha moment. We love scandal. We feed on it. In our text this week, as you just heard, Paul calls the cross a scandal. And like any good scandal, it involves several things. It involves a public figure. That would be Jesus, right? He's a very public figure. I know that may be new to some of us who are new to the faith or or new to trying to figure out what Christianity is, but Jesus is a historical person, public figure. It also involves an event that disturbs our sensibilities. But it also confronts us with a truth that we have to deal with. So the cross, like any other thing, is any other scandal confronts us with those things. A public figure, uh, an event that disturbs us, and a truth we've got to deal with. But why is it a scandal? Why is it that a death, even if it was a vicious one, right? Even if it was a vicious death, would be scandalous to us? And that's the question we take to the scriptures this morning. There's an outline in your bulletin, as always. We're going to look at this in, in three ways. I know that's a shock to many of you, but we're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at absolute categories. We're going to look at an absolute offense. And then finally, we're going to find absolute freedom, okay? Let's begin with absolute categories. So, if you've been here, you know that for the first part of this book, for the most part, Paul has been systematic, right? He's gone through things very evenly minded. He's talked about his own story. He's talked a little bit about where the the Galatians are. He's spoken to them about how he's not real happy with where they are, and he'd rather they be somewhere else. But the last few weeks, Paul seems to be shifting. He's not quite as systematic. He seems beside himself. He starts mixing metaphors. Uh, He starts uh, making bold statements. He just seems flustered. And we see this again this week as we look at these absolute categories. First, let's look at this foul. Look down at verses 7 to 8, where the text says this literally. You were running well. Who cut in front of you to prevent you from relying on the truth? Now, Paul begins this with an athletic metaphor. And I know some of you get a little tired of the fact that I use athletic metaphors. Well, nah, so does Paul. Uh, but anyway, Paul, Paul uses this athletic metaphor uh, about, about racing. And oftentimes, uh, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament will compare or, or describe the Christian faith in terms of a race, an athletic competition, not a sprint, like a marathon. And it, it's an endurance race and one that he's not really uh, interested in whether or not you win. The point is finishing uh, the race. That's the, the important part. It, it's, it's a race. And Paul is saying here to them, you were doing well. You were running fine. But at some point in all this, someone seems to have cut in front of you. And that, that, that word there, that word cut you off or... Um, Hindered is what the ESV says. It, it, it literally means to, to prevent, right? And so in, uh, in the original, it's the same word that Paul is going to use later in verse 12 when he talks about these people cutting the whole way. It's the same root. So he's, he's, he kind of cordons off this phrase in this way. But then he goes on, okay? This persuasion isn't from the one who called you, okay? Two things in this. First, who this one is. When Paul talks about the one who called us, when he's talking to Christians, he says the one who called you, he's not talking about himself, okay? It's always he's talking about God, and here's, here's why. The Bible is stubborn about the fact that left to ourselves, none of us seek God. Paul literally will say in one of his other letters, the letter to the Romans, that literally, no one seeks God. He's quoting that from the Old Testament. Like, no one does on their own. We are bent to seek anything but him, but the Bible tells us that a relationship with God begins with well, God. He calls us. He seeks after us. And he does so, not because of something great in us, but entirely out of his grace and undeserved favor. Okay? So first and foremost, when he talks about the one who called us, he's talking about God. God who called us, who chased us, 
completely out of his grace. But second, Paul is being very clear that what the Galatians are doing now is not from God. Now, if you've been here, you remember that this would fly in the face of the people that have come in to talk to the Galatians, that are leading them astray, right? Because they've come in saying, well, Jesus is all fine and good, but you, you know you have to keep God's rules too, right? There's this Bible thing, and you've got to keep all these rules, and God will like you if you keep the rules. But Paul's point is this. You began running. You began your faith with the understanding that it is faith in Jesus alone that makes you right with God. That is God's gospel. And so whatever this is that you've been believing, been following, it isn't from him. Okay, here's the point. Paul sees the Galatians as those who started well. Right? Some of you know how that is. You, you come to know Jesus and, and you're filled with faith and you're filled with fervor. And then somewhere along the way, they got tripped up. They were following Jesus. They were trusting in him alone for their standing before God. But then these dudes come on the scene insisting that to have God smile, to get to God to like you, you've got to keep God's rules. You've got to follow the law. You've got to do these religious works. Jesus is all fine. But God likes those who keep the rules. Right? Simple. Paul says to them, they've cut you off. They've tripped you up. In other words, you're not running anymore. You were running. But you're not anymore. That's the important point, so don't miss it. Paul doesn't see this as a change of pace. You were running, but now you're a little slower. Oh, you're kind of crawling. He doesn't even see it as, well, you kind of got a little off track. You were running this way, but now you just kind of, your patterns shifted a little. He doesn't see this as a course correction. It is being tripped up. It is being prevented from running. And if running is faith in Christ, it's clear. You aren't with God anymore. And that leads naturally to this whole idea of pollution in verses 9 and 10. Look there. Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. All right? Now, this is what I was talking about. Paul was just talking about running and athletics. Now he shifts to baking. Right? I mean, many of us who are really big on athletics, the baking thing is lost on us. Okay? So these these are metaphors that just suddenly get mixed. But they would have been a common metaphor at the time, especially in Jewish communities. Jesus is known to have used this. Right? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And then, and, and then uh, his disciples are like, is he talking about bread? Like, I mean, I'm hungry. Maybe he's talking about bread. They don't, they don't get it then. So let's, let's take a look at exactly what it's talking about. The point is this. Maybe you know this because you do baking. Maybe you don't. If you take a lump of dough and you put a little tiny bit of yeast in it, it's not as if just that little, little spot where you drop the yeast, that that begins to rise. And it's like this big bread tumor, right? Now, that's not the way it works. It works its way through the entire lump of dough. That dough is no longer unleavened. It is now leavened. Okay? It now has yeast in it. In the same way, Paul says, you can't add, listen to me, you can't add a little bit of moralism to your Christianity. If you do, it isn't Christianity anymore. It's moralism. Maybe, maybe the baking thing is tripping us up. Let me think of it this way. Think about a glass of water. If you take a nice, fresh, cold glass of water, and you drop a drop of Tabasco sauce in it. That is no longer fresh water. It is completely something else. It's not like, well, I can get around the drop of Tabasco. Now, some of you may like it better that way. But for most of us, we're like, I don't know what this is, but it's awful, and I don't want to drink it on a hot day. Uh, it, com- it changes it into something completely different. And that's why Paul says, I have trust in you in the Lord that no one will think something different. Okay? The important point of the phrase is, is that, that part, in the Lord. Paul is saying... If you are truly in Jesus, 
If you truly have faith in him, you will get what I'm saying and see that you cannot mix the two. You cannot mix Jesus and this moralism stuff. You can't mix Jesus and these religious works. So he continues, the one troubling you will bear the judgment, whoever he is. All right. Let me be really clear. Do you see how absolute Paul is being? He's not leaving us with a whole lot of gray here. Why is that? Because they are trusting not in Jesus, but in their rule keeping. Okay, listen to me. By, their, by the implication, they are not in the Lord anymore. They are cutting in. These, these teachers are coming in, trusting in their rule keeping, and they are cutting in on these believers. They are, they are taking the, the believers that Paul had started, the, the folks who had started the church in Galatia, these brand new Christians, and they are coming in, they are cutting in on their race with Christ and cutting themselves being cut off from him. The way this works is this. When we stand before the Lord, we can offer him either Jesus' perfect obedience, Jesus' sin-bearing death, or our broken independent attempts to love God and others. But you cannot offer both. It will be one or the other. And that brings us to an absolute offense. Look at verse 11 for the scandal. Paul says, look, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why is it that I'm being persecuted? Okay, now, for most of us, that's going to sound really strange, especially if we don't have a whole lot of Bible in our background. Uh, So let me explain this. In the Old Testament, God uh, rescues a people. Okay? He calls this guy by the name of Abraham and he says, I'm going to save the world through you. I'm going to rescue humanity that's fallen, broken, alienated from me. I'm going to rescue them through your family. And then he gives him this sign that's going to be on all of his people. It was circumcision. Okay? And it, this sign was a bloody sign that was applied to every male uh, in, that was born into a Jewish family at, at the age of eight days old. And the reason was this. It was a sign that if God's people would have faith in him to rescue them from their sin, that he would do so. That he would fulfill his promise. And the sign itself was a kind of oath that God's people took, saying, saying, in fact, that they would do this. That they would have faith in him. But if they didn't, if they turned from him, if they betrayed this this promise-bound relationship, then they, like the act itself, would be cut off. And like we know, anything that's cut off from a body and thrown aside withers and dies. Okay? That's the way that sign was supposed to work. And these teachers have come in after Paul and said, if you want to be right with God, if you want to have his smile, if you want to, if you want to see God uh, redeem you, then, then you have to become like us Jews. You have to take this sign on yourself. But the problem is this. That sign pointed to something that Christians thought had already happened. It, it, it was pointing to something that had already taken place. Jesus had come. Jesus has lived for us. He has died for us and rose again for us. Jesus has fulfilled what that sign was pointing towards because he himself was cut off in the place of those who had betrayed God. And through him, God had rescued us from our sins. And so these teachers, though, have made these, these false teachers that have come in have made the sign into the thing that it was pointing to. As if you were trying to get to Florida and and you uh, found a sign that said Florida 900 miles and you stopped. You're like, I got there. I'm good. They're like, but dude, dude, there's still ice outside? Like, you're not in Florida. Well, it says it right there. I mean, that's the whole point. The sign became for them what what got God's approval. And if you didn't have it, you couldn't be part of God's people. 
They were stopping at the road sign, insisting they had reached their destination. But now Paul asks the question, because it is likely these teachers who had come along saying not only that... Um, not only that this was normal, but that Paul actually, you know, Paul believes this too. I mean, they were coming along and saying, you know, if, if Paul didn't say this, if Paul didn't tell you this, if he left this little bit out about what it means to follow Jesus, you've got to do this too. It's probably because he, he, he just wanted you to accept him. He wanted you to be okay with him. And if that's confusing to you, you're probably not a dude, okay? Because, like, guys, you're imagining what it would be like if somebody said, hey, if you want to be right with Jesus, you guys got to go under the knife a little bit. You'd be like, <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, I'm done. And, and you'd walk away. But, and so they're saying, look, Paul just didn't want to, he didn't want to offend you. He didn't want to, he, he wanted you to accept him. And so he, he left this little bit out. Paul's saying, are you kidding me? Look, if I'm pushing that you have to do something like this to get God to like you, why am I being persecuted? He says, if that's the case, the scandal of the cross is nullified. All right. Here it is. Let's dig into this. This is a huge statement, so check back in if you checked out. That word scandal, that can be translated as stumbling block. That can be translated offense. Um, what, what it means in the original, it means something that gives, gives offense or causes revulsion. Okay? Something that causes revulsion. Something that creates that, that guttural reaction in us. To get at why Paul puts these words together, we have to do a little cultural work, right? Because Paul says in, in one of his other letters, in, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says that the, the cross is uh, a stumbling block to Jews. He calls it uh, the same word that he uses here. And he says it's foolishness to Greeks uh, or Gentiles. Here he lumps them both together. Here's what he means. Jews believed that if you were crucified, if you were hung on a tree, that you were cursed of God. You were under God's curse. And so Jesus was crucified, hung on a tree, and therefore, one, he was cursed by God, and two, could not in any way be God's Messiah. Because God would never curse his, his Messiah. God would never kill his prophet. God wouldn't let such a thing happen. That's for Jews, for Gentiles. And remember, in the, in the Jewish worldview, you're one or the other, right? You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. And for Gentiles... To believe that your salvation, to believe that your flourishing as a human, the answer to your deepest problems was bound up in someone who himself was executed, that's silly at best. To believe that someone executed as a royal pretender by Rome is now Lord of all the universe, ridiculous. To believe that your salvation was ultimately bound up not in you and what you do, but in someone who couldn't even save himself? That's just flat out stupid. Paul is saying, if, you, if I say that you are right with God, not because of Jesus, but because of the sign, I have removed the thing that is so offensive about Christianity. And so Paul ends with this insanely strong reaction. Look down at verse 12. He says, I wish those agitating you would go ahead and castrate themselves. Okay. Now, for most of us, that's a little bit over the line, right? Like, okay, Paul, I get it, you're upset, but whoa, like, hold on. Actually, it's not, and here's why. That word agitating, the ESV says unsettling, which is so proper. Uh, you can tell when a, when a translation has its roots in, in British English, because everything sounds very proper, and unsettling is just very polite. Uh, but the same word is used in literature at the same time that Paul is writing to talk about people who incite mobs to rebellion. 
unsettling, yes, very unsettling, uh, but, but it's a little more than unsettling, okay? Th- those that are inciting mobs to rebellion, it is, it is a very intentional word choice. Paul is saying that these teachers, these false teachers, aren't just doing a little thing. They're not just coming in and going, eh, you know, they're making you a little uncomfortable. They are inciting Christians to rebel against Jesus. Now listen, what happens to those convicted of treason? What's the penalty that they get? Death. In any and every culture. That's not a, like a, just an ancient world thing. No, no, no. Treason, the penalty is always death. Do you see what's at stake here? See, we tend to think in our safe little Western world that religious preference, you see, even I, I just said it, that, that your choice and where you go religiously is, is, a, is a preference issue akin to whether you like beer or wine. Right? Whether, whether you prefer conservative talk radio or NPR, whether you use bar soap or body wash. But what's at stake here are the lives of those for whom Paul labored. So if, I'm, if I may be so bold, like what is at stake here as we think about what Paul is talking about is your life. And so his reaction is born out of love for these people and a desire to protect them. What he's basically saying is this. If these dudes like cutting so much, I wish they'd just go the whole way on themselves. If they think cutting is such a big deal, go for it on yourself, somewhere else. Don't want to see it. Like that's what, he's, that's what he's saying. He's not being polite. He's not being PC. And he's certainly not being judicious. He's speaking out of pastoral concern for those he loves and wants to see flourish in a relationship with Jesus. He had helped this group of people encounter Jesus. They had come to know Jesus. They were beginning to show Jesus. And now all of that is being thrown in the trash. They are being derailed, prevented from running, and in danger of being in rebellion against their king. And that is because they are in danger of placing their work not on the finished work of Christ, not on the finished work of Jesus, but in what they can do, and their rule-keeping, their religious activity. And Paul says that road leads only to judgment. It leads only to judgment. And so no, Paul has no love for those that are responsible for this. Quite frankly, no loving person should. If you watch someone else leading people to their deaths, would you want to be judicious towards them? You know, Jesus had a similar reaction. And we always like to drive a wedge between Paul and Jesus, right? Jesus had a similar reaction. He said, if anyone causes these uh, little ones to... Stumble, same word, uh, the offense, if it causes these little to, to stumble, then it, what, what I would like for them, Jesus says, I think they ought to tie a millstone around their neck and jump into the, jump into the sea. A millstone? Like a gigantic circular rock tied around your neck? Like, you're not treading water with that, okay? Jesus is serious, and so is Paul. And frankly, there is very little that will get me fired up, like when I hear someone, that someone heard, and I hear this often, Someone has heard in a church or from other Christians that God cannot accept you unless your life is cleaned up. That, that, that God cannot accept you unless you get your act together. The gospel is come be good like me. Can I tell you, I cannot, tell this, I cannot say this any more strongly. That is from the pit of hell. There is nothing godly about that statement. There is nothing Christian about that. We are right with God purely by faith in Jesus. And I don't care. Like some of us in this room, you are, you are the picture of middle class morality. And some of us are more like me and your lives are not great. You're hanging on to Jesus by your fingernails. You know what? Either one of you, you are, you are made right with God. You have God's smile because of Jesus. 
Not because of your performance this week. Away with that nonsense. Now, I want to press this home to us this morning by dealing with two things. First, let's deal with absolutes. <laughs> we read it this morning, uh, you know, or Jason read it to us in the call to confession. The Bible has this stubborn fixation on God having first place in our lives, right? It's the first of the ten. You got ten commandments. The, big, the first one is you're going to worship the Lord and Him only. Like, he's got this thing, like, you got to have first, I got to have first place. But it is also clear that this is something that apart from his work in our lives is impossible for us. Because you see, in the Old Testament, it was often talked about under the language of idolatry. Worshipping a false god. But the thing, though, is that this was rarely, idol worship was rarely blatant, right? What I mean by that is this. It was rarely like, today I'm worshipping the God of the Old Testament. Today I'm worshipping Yahweh, I'm worshipping God. You know, I'm done with him. I'm going to go worship Baal. Eh, Zeus. Zeus is my man now. Like, it was rarely that blatant. Normally, it was syncretistic. It went over with syncretism. You know what I mean by that, right? We take a little bit of God over here, take a little bit of Baal. A little bit of God. I really like Aphrodite. Like, she does good things for me. So let's, let's, so they would mix them together. Worshiping God over here, Baal over there. Worshiping, adding in the worship of another God, just dabbling in magic. You know, God's not really going to mind if I do a little bit of this, too. I mean, I might as well hedge my bets. Later in the Old Testament, this idea of idolatry became attached to worshiping God outwardly, but inwardly being far from him. So I'm going to come in, I'm going to do my religious duties, but inwardly I really don't want to have anything to do with him. God says that, they, that in that case you're worshiping a false god because the god that only wants your outward service and not relationship is not the god of the Bible. It's a false god. The same is true in the New Testament. Idolatry isn't just the setting up of a statue and bowing down to it, though it is that. It is trusting in anything but Jesus to make you right. Trusting in anything but Jesus to give you value, to, to prove your worth, to, to, to deal with life, to give you hope. Do you see it? Like the problem in Galatia, the problem with these Christians is that their hope transferred. That's their problem. Their hope transferred from Jesus to what they did. And listen, some of you are like, I don't, Rick, come on, man. Like, they had Jesus. They were just, you're just doing a few good things too. Like, what, what, okay, well, listen to me. If you have two people and they both trust in Jesus, but one is doing lots of religious activity and the other's not, and you think the one who did a lot of religious activity is okay with God, but the one who doesn't isn't, the difference between them is not Jesus. The difference between them is what they do. Their hope is in what they do. Paul is saying, if you add anything to Jesus, if you add anything to Jesus, you take away Jesus. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It nullifies the work of Christ. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, come on, man, but surely God is happy with the good stuff I do, even if I don't believe in Jesus. I mean, look, I'm a good dude. I, I, I give to the guy on the corner when he's cold. I, I do the good things. I'm sure you do, man. I, I'm sure you do. Look, some of y'all in here are way more self-disciplined than I am. You're, you're just a better person. I'm not going to lie about that. There's no point. But I cannot say this enough. God is not looking for you to add up your good deeds and give them to him. God is not looking for good. He's looking for dependent. The good that he is looking for is perfection. 
You want to take a shot at that? I'm going to try and gather everything up and say, well, uh, close? No. Look, look. The, in the Old Testament, one of the prophets tells us that, that our righteousness, even the good things we do, which are good. No, I'm not going to argue with that. They're good. And he says, but before God, you want to compare them to God? He's perfect. They look filthy next to him. The good that he is looking for is perfection, and that can only be found in Jesus. There is one way to be reconciled to God, faith in Jesus alone. And when you try to add anything to Jesus, you give up on Jesus. All right, lastly, let's deal with the offense. Most people find Christianity offensive because of its absolute claims, right? I mean, it, it has absolute claims. And in our culture, claiming that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God is very offensive. But here's the thing. What normally offends people is not exactly what Paul is talking about. Matter of fact, I would say it's the exact opposite of what Paul is talking about. What normally offends people is the notion that Christianity's religious beliefs, Christianity's religious uh, activities are the ones that will make God like you, and not Islam's or Buddhism's, right? In our, in our pluralistic culture, we don't like that. That sounds imperialistic. Uh, that, 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 sounds, that sounds like you're giving preference to one culture over another. But do you, do you see where the assumptions are? The assumption is still running on the fact that it is our beliefs and our activities that get us right with God. So the idea that our, our beliefs or our, our, uh, our practices, our, our religious deeds make us right with God. And Christianity is saying, well, my religious deeds are the good ones and not yours. But that's not what Paul is saying. Christianity is actually way more offensive than that. It's way more offensive than that. The offense of the cross is this, friends. None of our activities, none of our intellectual beliefs can make us right with God. I don't care what culture you're from. None of them work. None of your works, none of your moralism, none of your amoralism, none of your religion or or your irreligion can make you flourish in the world. The great offense of the cross is that it's not beliefs and it's not practices, no matter what culture it is, that that will save you. It is a person. It is a person. It is the person of Jesus. You must put your faith in Jesus who lived a life you couldn't. Died to bear your sin. Died to bear your guilt, your betrayal of God. And then rose again to be crowned as king of the universe. You can't do enough. And so the cross ends up offending at least three things. First and foremost, it offends our pride. Look, I don't care how moral you are or how immoral you are. Apart from Jesus, we are all lost. Listen to me. Let me say that again. I don't care how moral you are or how immoral you are. And we are in this room in a spectrum, right? And some of us just clean up real nice on Sunday mornings, but Monday through Saturday, or at least in the evenings or in the dark of our rooms or whatever it is, we know. I don't care. I don't care how moral you are or immoral you are. Apart from Jesus, you are lost. But the cross also offends our view of God. It doesn't just offend our pride, because our pride would say, like, look, I'm pretty good, Rick. I've got this covered. And and, and God comes to us and says, oh, really? You think it's real? You you just need a little leg up, huh? Look to the cross. Look how bad it really is. It's so bad I had to die. And not just for the, you know, Johnny over in the corner who you think is just a train wreck. For you as well. It offends our pride. 
But it also offends our view of God. Because it tells us that God is not a taskmaster. God is not a grudging boss who, who kind of will give us what we're due when we work for him. Instead, he's more like a scorned lover who finds us in the midst of our adulteries and calls us to return to him, willing to forgive everything we've done. He says, look, I just want you to come home. I just want you to come home. See what I've done. I've taken care of this. Just come home. It offends our pride. It offends our view of God. But it also offends our fear, our self-protection. Because it calls us to release the imagined control we have over God. Do you understand that that's what religion is all about? It's about control. I do this, this, and this. God has to give me this. It's about control because you and I do not want to have to put our lives in the hands of someone else. And put our trust and say, I can't do anything. It's all on you. We don't want to do that. It's terrifying. We don't, we don't want to do that when it comes to like our lunch choice. Like... Yeah, go ahead and order for me. I'll be there in a minute. Are you serious? Like, some of us are like, no, no, I like my food way too much for that. Like, we don't want to do that with lunch, better yet, our lives. It offends our fear. We have to put our faith, our hope, our lives in the hands of another. Don't be fooled, friends. This is offensive. You cannot control God. You can't indebt God to you. You can't work enough for him because he doesn't want your work. He doesn't need your work. He wants you. And frankly, deep down in a place that none of us really ever want to admit, he's the one we really want to. So if you're a Christian in this place, can you listen close for a minute? If you're not, just you can listen in. But if you're a Christian, I really need you to listen close. If this is the offense of the cross... Can we please make sure we are clear on what should be offensive and what shouldn't? Look, I'm not saying Christianity doesn't boldly proclaim a morality. It does. Jesus claims lordship over all of our life, whether it's economic or sexual or relational or, or, or whatever. Not just some little corner of our lives we call spiritual. He claims it all. And Paul's going to get to that very thing in a few verses. Like We're going to get there in a couple weeks, all right? But morality, listen to me, morality is the outflow of a changed life. Morality is the outflow of a life transformed by Jesus. A life resting on Christ alone. And so we cannot put the cart before the horse. To do so is to claim that God likes us when we clean up our act. And that God accepts us now because we have kind of gotten ourselves clean. It is the cross that boldly declares that there is nothing in us that indebts us to God. Nothing in us that indebts us to God. But instead that God, out of his free grace and his sovereign choice, draws us to himself, rescues us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and changes us. That's the cross. It is foolishness and offensive to the world. But it is the glory, hope, and great joy of those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we ask that you would bless uh, the, the word that we have just heard. We pray that you would use it to transform us. For, for my friends here who uh, have never placed their faith in Jesus, whether they've uh, been sitting in these chairs for since we started, uh, 
and they're just now realizing that, or others of us who, who have, are just hearing this for the first time, we, just, we pray, Lord, that you would give faith, that you would help the cross to be large in our eyes, that our pride would be offended, that our view of you would be offended, that our fear would be offended, and that we would joyfully and lovingly uh, bear that offense and, and have our sanity restored by you so that we would see that all the glory is to go to you. That we have no need for fear and that, Lord, you are a greater God, a greater Father, a greater lover of your people than we ever could have imagined. And now, Lord, as we, as we come to the table, we pray that you would meet us there for the sake of your name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.